there are times that what the Lord calls upon us to do, those things can be very, very difficult. And one of the issues that we are called upon as a church in which to be involved is church discipline. It's probably something that many within our congregation today have never experienced because there is definitely a lack of church discipline that is engaged in today in the modern church. For some reason, churches have embraced the idea that they have a better plan than God. And when we return to the scriptures, we realize how dangerous that position can be and how ineffective it can be if we do not do what the Lord has directed us to do. Paul had written in the previous letter some very important instruction related to the conduct of the church. Some of the issues that he raised were not completed. They were issues that involved an ongoing process. And to some extent, he continues to deal with some of those issues as he writes this second letter. And in some cases, he's going to bring us to a conclusion, which is good for us because it helps us understand the Lord's will in some very, very difficult situations. We are introduced to such an event like that in this second chapter of 2 Corinthians. And I'd like us to go back and look at those verses that we read together individually to try to determine a flow of what was addressed initially in Paul's first letter and now begins to unfold in a completion sense here in the, the second letter. In that fifth verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we are introduced to a question. And the question arises over the word, anyone. He says, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Who is the anyone that is being referred to in this passage? Generally speaking, there are two theories as to who is being addressed. We know that Paul had been opposed by some individuals within the church at Corinth because he addresses them on a number of different occasions, and in some cases he, he addresses them in a defense of his own apostolic position and the, the authority that he had as an apostle and the authority that he had been given by the Lord in order to inscripturate the words that we have in these two letters. So it may have been one of the individuals who had stood against him and had created a problem for him. And the church was now brought to face that the fact that when the church resisted what was being revealed through Paul, they were really resisting the Lord, and they were doing that which was displeasing to him. There is a second theory that personally I think is probably more defensible, and yet I, I wouldn't be dogmatic about this. But you'll remember in the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians, there was a brother who had been involved in immorality. He had taken his father's wife, his stepmother, and he had become intimate with her. 
and it seems to have been an ongoing situation. And Paul wrote to the church, and he said this, you don't even, there's, there's no meeting necessary about this. A guy that's living that way, there is one step of action that the church needs to take, and that is they have to remove him. That's really the greatest extent of discipline that a church can inflict upon another individual. And it is a very serious issue because when the person is removed from the fellowship of the church, there is a spiritual umbrella from which that person is removed. And the spiritual umbrella is the body of believers who become a protective element for each other. We stand together for truth. We encourage one another. We minister to one another. We are individuals who are called together into a body for the benefit of each individual. But when a person is removed from the church, Paul indicated that they are being removed for the destruction of their flesh and they are being turned over to Satan. That seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? And it's intended to be. Because the reproach that an individual living in immorality brings upon not only themselves but upon the church is very destructive to the work of the Lord. And if the flesh is to be destroyed, it is to be destroyed for the purpose of removing that reproach and ultimately bringing the individual home, which for a believer who is living in sin, that is still heaven. Because justification has occurred and our standing before God is a standing of righteousness in the judge's sight so that even the action of committing sin is really an issue of an offense to a father. But the judge has been satisfied. Do we all understand that? Very important. From a judicial point of view, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. But for the father's relationship with his children, there is the possibility of disobedience and a broken fellowship that ultimately the father might come to this place. You've done enough. You've reproached my name. You've brought problems for the church. You have become a thorn in the side of the work that I am doing. Come on home. And he brings them home. In some cases, he takes them to the woodshed. And he spanks them. Uh, maybe we ought to put it this way. He spanks us. Have you ever been spanked by the Lord? Yeah. I've been spanked. And maybe you have, and maybe you didn't even know it. But the Lord has a way to get us moving in the right direction. And he does that by his grace and by his mercy. So when we come back to this passage we are being introduced to one of those two individuals and I would say that for our purposes today I'm probably going to focus more on the second of those. The individual who was involved in these acts of immorality. And Paul goes on to, to speak more about this. Uh, he, he basically is trying to tell the believers there that he does not want to be overly severe toward them in the way they dealt with this but that they have done the right thing in removing the person because they apparently have done that. And when we come to the sixth verse, we begin to see a change that's taking place. I, I, you might say this, the way Paul Harvey used to say it, 
the rest of the story. Because when you're left in 1 Corinthians, you're left with this person being, the church being instructed to put this person out. Now we are told they apparently did that. And so Paul addresses them now in verse 6 and he says this, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. Well, there are a couple of things that are very important for us to understand in this passage. Number one, when he mentions punishment, he is basically saying this, you took action. You did what you were supposed to do. You brought down what Paul describes as a punishment on this individual, and that punishment was meted out by the church. Do you notice how he says the majority? He's not talking about one person being the the motivating force behind church discipline. Church discipline means exactly what it says. The church agreed by majority that this person needed to be punished. The punishment was removal from the church. What to me is interesting is this. It says the majority, not all of them. And that helps me understand something. Over the years, as a pastor, we have had, in the the churches that I've pastored, there have been occasions where we have had to level church discipline. And the discipline that is leveled by the church is intended not to, from our point of view, not to hurt the individual, but to expose them to the spiritual judgment that's going to come upon them because of their sin. From our point of view, we put them out for that purpose to be accomplished, but we don't inflict the punishment itself, nor should we encourage that person through remaining in close fellowship with them. What I have seen over the years, I'm just going to tell you the the way it is. When our churches in, in the past have had to exercise church discipline, there were always individuals within the church that absolutely ignored what the Lord said. And they continued to fellowship with the individual. They continued to treat them like close friends. They continued to interact with them. And later on, I'm going to show you why the Lord said that's not supposed to happen. And they have essentially remove the sting of being separated from the body of believers. When church discipline is carried out the way God intended, the person that is removed longs for the fellowship that they experienced with others of like faith. They long to be back with the body of Christ. They long to enjoy the benefits of ministry and the opportunity to minister. And now that's removed. And they are put away. And some undermine that, thinking that their idea is better than God's. And you say, oh, well, pastor, you're just being cruel and and you're being harsh and you're being hard. No, no, I don't think so. May I take you to the passage that God, go back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, beginning at verse 11. First Corinthians chapter 5, look at this. 
Well, let me back up to verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly do not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Now, let me just stop there and just remind you, as believers, we are going to rub shoulders with people whose lifestyles are in conflict with what the Word of God has to say. They are unbelievers. The Lord says, yes, you're going to rub shoulders with them. And you are to be salt and you are to be light. You are to make a positive impact for the cause of Christ upon their lives. And He's saying this, I'm not telling you don't, don't hang around with people like that. In fact, uh, for believers, we sometimes become so comfortable in our little cocoon of safety that we ignore people outside of the community of faith and we don't make an impact on their lives. And the Lord told us through Paul, wait a minute, that's not the right way to live. You've got to interact with people like that. And you've got to make an influence in their lives for the cause of Christ. But when you get to verse 11... There is a change. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Boy, that's a pretty harsh suggestion, isn't it? Are you all listening? Is that a harsh suggestion? No, it is not. That is a harsh command. That is not a suggestion. It means exactly what it says. You isolate the person who is living in disobedience to the Lord in these specific areas. And there are a couple others that are mentioned in the Scriptures where the same instruction is given. A guy that won't work. You isolate that person because if you don't work, you don't eat. Now, if you can't work, that's different. But there's a lot of people who are on disability that quite honestly could work. Uh, That's getting political now, and I don't want to get there. Leave it to Carl. (laughs) Read Carl's Facebook posts. You'll get the the scoop on that. Yeah. (laughs) The Lord does not say, unless you don't want to, don't hang around with this person. No, He says that the purpose is to isolate them so that they long for the fellowship. Why? Because something is being generated within them that is the right thing to do and it is the right way to handle people who are living in disobedience. Now go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll go on in verse 7. So that, on the contrary, now here's what's coming. You ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. What is being said? You have to take verses 6 and 7 together, and here is what is happening. 
In verse 6, the punishment has been inflicted on the individual. They have been removed from the church. The people of the church have followed the instruction not to have fellowship, not to eat with a person who is living in a moral life or in the other cases as well. And as a result of that, this man repented. He acknowledged his sin. He was overwhelmed with the sorrow. And now that tough, grisly, old, traveling apostle opens up his heart. And he says, now let me show you how believers respond. And he said, so this person is not overwhelmed by the grief that they're experiencing, you forgive them and you welcome them back into the fellowship. Do you get it? We're not being mean to people. We're not, we're not trying to crush a person. We're removing them from the benefits of walking in fellowship with God and His people. And now, as a result, they long for that. They recognize it's their sin that has isolated them. They confess it. And when they turn around from their sin, they find the church like this. Come home. We are really glad to have you back. Do you notice? No penance had to be done. Well, we'll take you back if you do this, this, this. No. The response of the church is to instantly forgive. And to forgive completely. To return a person to fellowship, to return a person to the benefits of the local body of Christ. And that's the point. And the people that undermine that don't understand that they are ruining the plan that God established in order to restore a sinning brother. And they think they're doing good. They're not. Paul says, you let the church do what it's supposed to do, and you make sure you all individually follow through with this so that we get to the place of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and we welcome this person back with open arms. Therefore, verse 8, I urge you to reaffirm your love to Him. I've watched churches do that. And frankly, it's a beautiful thing. It's not always what the church anticipates. There are times I wonder how much I can really tell you all and you know, I wonder oftentimes, should I say this? And you know what conclusions I come to? I'm going to say it. Because I think it helps clarify what we're talking about. When I finished seminary, I was offered a teaching position at a church in Toledo. I was hired by Toledo, Ohio. I was hired by that church, essentially by the pastor who was, he was kind of a, kind of ran the church, not, not totally dictatorial, but very, very, very strong leader. And um, the night before I moved from southeastern Pennsylvania to Toledo, Ohio, my pastor, Bill Park, called me into his office, and I thought, what have I done? I'm looking at my life, and I'm saying, man, the pastor's calling me to his office. I must have done something really bad. 
And there were seven or eight things that it could have been, but <laughs> but when I got in there, I realized it wasn't anything that I had done. He said, Ryan, sit down. I sat down. He said, there's something you need to know before you leave for Toledo. Pastor Stool, I'll tell you, has run away from the church with another woman. This is a church of 1,500 people. And back in the, uh, this would have been what, the early 80s? Late 70s, early 80s. That, that was a big church. That was huge. He's taken off with this lady. And you're walking into that kind of a situation. That particular pastor, probably unbeknownst to him, was in line to become the president of one of the outstanding Christian colleges in the country. When he made this decision, he gave that up. The church formally had to take action to remove him from membership. But the man who later became the president of that college had been this fellow's roommate in seminary. And he continued to minister spiritually to the needs of that pastor. And the pastor returned. We were having evangelistic services at the time. And the individual leading in those services said, Folks, before you leave, there's something we need to do. And out from the side room came the pastor and he walked down to the front and he said what I have done is sin and what I have done is wrong and I'm asking for you to forgive me I'm not sure there was a person in that church that did not stand in line and throw their arms around him and express love and forgiveness and a welcome. Sadly, he didn't mean it. And he moved to California and became involved again. I can't justify what he did, but I can tell you this, the church did the right thing. The church said, we forgive you. And we take you back. He wasn't taken back as pastor he was taken back into the membership of the church and he continued to serve in the church and attend the services until he was called away to become an associate with another individual who himself had become involved immorally was exposed by his son was forgiven by the church upon his confession and later took a gun and blew his brains out. You think we don't have problems? The Christian community? I want to tell you something. We better handle things the right way. We better handle things the way God intends for them to be handled. And Paul makes it very clear. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him.
let me interject a thought here that when an offense occurs, whether it is a minor offense that would be merely individual or whether it is a devastating offense that becomes a reproach to the cause of Christ and becomes a church-wide and even beyond that uh, situation, there, there are commonalities that exist in every case of forgiveness. You see, in the previous letter, Paul was speaking about the discipline. Now he's talking about the forgiveness. So let me give you a couple ideas here, okay? When someone is offensive, whether small or large, there are some immediate responses that believers must take. The first is this. The moment I am sinned against, I give forgiveness to the individual. I forgive them. By that, what I mean is, I seek no revenge. I seek no harm upon that person. But, that forgiveness is merely from my heart and my intent to still do what is right by the other individual. The issue of fellowship has been broken. And that needs to be addressed. The way that is addressed is for the other person to respond appropriately and confess the sin and reestablish the fellowship. Before that can happen and before you can respond in full unbroken fellowship, there needs to be a response on their part. Does that make sense? Step number one, I forgive you from my heart. I mean no harm to you. However... We have got a problem, and the problem is you have committed this sin, and I'm speaking now on the level of just a personal issue. We need to address this so that our fellowship can be restored. And unless that happens, the fellowship is going to remain broken. There are times that does not have to happen, and the Scripture tells us when and why. The reason that doesn't always have to happen is because of what Peter said. He said, love will cover a multitude of sins. What's he making reference to? There are times, have, have you ever been offended by somebody? Well, of course, everybody in here has been offended by somebody some, somewhere along the line. You know, there are times you love them enough to say, ah, forget it. I'm not going to let that hinder my fellowship with you. I'm not going to hold any grudges. It's done. Love covers a multitude of sins. But there are some times when you get offended to the point when you say, wait a minute, this has to be dealt with. Have you ever been there? You know what the Bible says? You go to that person by yourself and you tell them what they've done. If they confess and if they repent, you've gained your brother and now the fellowship is restored. If they don't, and it's a serious enough offense, you take several people with you, and you go back and you confront the issue again. If they don't listen to them, you take it to the church. And if a person refuses to deal with his or her sin in an appropriate fashion, the church takes action and says, we're going to have to put you out. We, we remove you from membership, and you're not part of this church anymore. 
That's a pretty serious thing, isn't it? So I forgive immediately. I mean you no harm. I hope that there can be restoration of fellowship by repentance and turning. Some issues aren't worth making a big deal about. I love you, and we're just going to forget that. By the way, there ought to be more of that. Sometimes people are really thin-skinned, and every little thing sets them off. You need to understand something. We live in a sin-cursed world, and sometimes things don't always go the way we want them to. But you know what? It's not about us. And so there are some things that you can say, oh, you know what, that's, that's no big deal. I love you. We're not going to worry about that. But then there's some things that unless they're taken care of, the church has to get involved. Well, this church did. They got involved. And Paul goes on to say this. He says in verse 9, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Oh, there is a test that's coming down now. What Paul is doing is he is testing the church to see if the church is willing to do what's right. There are some churches that, quite frankly, are just mean. And they are looking for people to discipline and to put out. And Paul's saying, now we're going to put you to the test. We're going to find out if you genuinely are a loving church that desires to please the Lord and to do what the Lord wants you to do, will you take this person back and forgive them? I'm going to put you to the test. Then he comes to verse, well, let me finish up that part of verse 9. Whether you are obedient in all things. By the way, if you're not obedient in this, I'm going to be writing you again. Verse 10. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying this. I trust you as a church. I live my life in the presence of Christ. I desire to please Him. I desire to do His will. And here is what I am submitting myself to. If you have taken care of this and you have forgiven this person, I just want you to know I have forgiven them too. You don't have to worry about my coming back to the church and unloading on you and unloading on this person for their immorality. What I am going to do is I am going to live my life before Christ and I'm going to practice the very things that I preach to you. And that is, I'm going to accept what you accept. And if you have forgiven this person, I don't even have to be there. I forgive them too. And then he tells us why that's important in the, in the final verse. Lest Satan advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. When he uses that word, take advantage, it means that, that Satan will do whatever he can to inflict evil into the church. For we are not ignorant of his devices. So now we have entered a realm of spiritual conflict that is much greater than us. It's the realm of obedience. It's the realm of response. And it's the realm of church's response. Now the title of this message, which you have had up on the board for a long time, and you're wondering, are there any notes? Let me, let me go through this very quickly. Quite frankly, I'm not sure that these things need a whole lot of explanation, but I do want to tell you this. 
when we do what God says, there is freedom. When we don't do it, there is bondage. So, why do we forgive the offender who is repentant? And the reason is quite simple. We free them from excessive sorrow. That's exactly what Paul said could be the case here. If you don't forgive this guy, he is going to be overwhelmed. You, you go back in, in verse 9 and it says uh, he will be swallowed up. That means completely taken over by the sorrow that he has experienced. Secondly, we free them from the isolation from the body of Christ. When a person is willing to deal with their sin, they're welcomed back with open arms and with love and with compassion and with complete acceptance. Thirdly, they're free from Satan's traps. When people live in disobedience to the Lord and they are not dealing with it, Satan continues to wreak havoc in their lives. Fourthly, we free them from spiritual uselessness. They're put out of the church. Their spiritual gifts cannot be used in the appropriate way because spiritual gifts have been given for the building up of the body of Christ. And they're set free from that. And they're set free from self-condemnation. So the offender experiences a great deal of freedom. Did you get that? Okay. Then there is the freedom that is given to the offended. Now we're the ones on the receiving end of offense or of sin. And by the way, I didn't mention this, but this is absolutely essential. Why is it that at the moment someone sins against us, we can say in our hearts, I forgive this person, I mean them no harm. Why? Because Christ forgave us. Do they deserve forgiveness? Probably not. They're a stinker. They did something against me, and that is wrong. And then I go before the Savior and I say, how much have you forgiven me? And he says, I've forgiven you of everything. I give you a standing that is equal to my own righteousness before the eyes of the Father. And by the way, the Lord taught us a very interesting lesson there in Matthew chapter 18 about this when he used the man that had been given from what would have been the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars and then was owed a few bucks and he wouldn't forgive the other guy. And the Lord used that story to help us understand we have been forgiven so much, how can we not forgive what someone does against us? And when we forgive, there's freedom. Here it comes. Freedom from the many sins that are listed for us in Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to listen to this. If we fail to forgive, we become in a vulnerable spot to these sins. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking. Put that away with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. So we protect ourselves from sin when we forgive. 
we protect ourselves from a sense of self-righteousness. If anyone is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. If anybody thinks that they're above this sort of thing, you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. We all can sin. We all can fall. So when we are trying to restore a sinful brother, we do it real carefully because we're just as vulnerable. We're set free from a loss of fellowship with our Heavenly Father. If we fail to forgive, we lose fellowship. We're set free from the loss of fellowship with a penitent brother. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who've done some pretty nasty things. But I'll tell you what, I'm still glad I can fellowship with them because they've dealt with them. We're set free from unanswered prayer. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And we're set free from spiritual uselessness. And then there's freedom for the church. And here it comes. We're set free from Satan's traps. We're set free from justified criticism. You notice how I put the word justified in there? The reason I did that is because people are going to criticize no matter what you do. Right? You can never do everything right. As a matter of fact, you can never do anything right. And somebody's going to criticize. But here's the deal. Most criticism is not justified. And so we want to be set free as a church from justified criticism. We are set free from disunity. We are set free from Phariseeism, which is a legalistic outlook on the way we conduct ourselves. And we are set free from unproductive service. You know, there's a whole lot more that I didn't even talk to us about today. But if I ended there, I would do us all a terrible disservice. And so what I'd like you to do is spend a minute and think about what you're about to hear. And then I have one final question. Jury and the judge 
set a prisoner free. There is no end to what its power can do. So let it go and be amazed by what you see through eyes of grace. The prisoner that it really frees is you. Forgiveness. Forgiveness sets us free. What is keeping you from forgiving? And you fill in the blanks. Let's stand. Father, you have provided forgiveness for us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who took the punishment of our sins all of them upon himself and died the death that we deserved and rose again from the dead to be our savior I pray that no one would leave here today without embracing Jesus Christ as their personal savior and for those of us who have been the recipients of that forgiveness help us individually and as a church to with open arms forgive those who have sinned against us and to restore the fellowship that we long to enjoy for the glory of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you.